0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants.
1: Why didn't you tell me? You told me Vader betrayed and
2: murdered my father.
3: Your father was seduced by the dark side of the Force. He ceased to be Anakin Skywalker and became Darth Vader. When that happened, the good man who was your father was destroyed. So what I told you was true, from a certain point of view. A certain point of view? Luke, you're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. There is still good in him. He's more machine now than man, twisted and evil. I can't do it, Ben. You cannot escape your destiny. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, August 2nd, 2018. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And
4: I'm Danielle Metz.
3: And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online.
1: Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's Just Right.
3: Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to our show today, as we will be discussing the search for truth from Jordan Peterson to Vladimir Putin, believe it or not. Uh, Danielle and I got to see Jordan Peterson here in London, Ontario, when he appeared at Centennial Hall a couple of weeks ago on Saturday July 21st, which I'll talk about shortly. And as soon as we remind you that you can write us at feedback at justwritemedia.org, Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and, of course, all of our archived broadcasts. Well, Danielle, what did you think of Jordan Peterson's visit to London at Centennial Hall a couple of weeks ago.
4: I found it very interesting. Actually, first off, I'd like to say I was very happy to see Dave Rubin there, because I'm a big fan of him. And I know they've been traveling together. I didn't realize that they'd make it together on the London stop. No, that was a surprise. But um, no, that was good. Uh, A lot of the stuff that Jordan Peterson talked about is stuff he's obviously talked about quite a bit before. And I'm also working on reading his book, The Twelve Rules. And a lot of it was familiar from that as well. But he did take on a couple of different topics that I hadn't heard him speak of before. Uh, what did you think? I was expecting
3: to hear a lot of things that I had already heard before, and I wasn't sure if we were going to be dealing with any protesters at the door when we got there either, because uh, the London Free Press the day before ran this article, Consternation, Not Controversy. Although unhappy with professors, London visit, human rights activists so far plan no protests. And, and, but they didn't think he was worth protesting because the, sp- the the person they spoke to here, a fellow named Reed, said, he's not Ann Coulter. <laughs> so I'm thinking, what does that mean? We've interviewed Ann Coulter, too, and I didn't see a problem with her.
4: Too many people on summer vacation, they couldn't get the crowd out. Yeah.
1: Well, it's like Jordan Peterson once said, if you want to have a, an event without any protests, have it in the morning. <laughs> because the left don't sleep. Well, they don't come out to events like this
3: either, and they wouldn't have been able to do much because the security was very tight. And when Danielle and I got there, it had been raining earlier in the day, and we had our umbrellas taken away from us. And Danielle had a big, big umbrella. My umbrella was in the bottom of my bag, and I had to remove it and hand it to the to the guards at the door, and we put it with Danielle. I don't know whose umbrella I have now on the way back. <laughs> yeah, because... yours was a little
4: generic. <laughs>
3: but it was significant because it came up during the the presentation as well.
4: They also made an announcement saying that no interruption or disruption would be tolerated at all, which I thought was a good thing. They were very clear about that.
3: It started off with Dave Rubin you know, introducing the whole event, and he said, Wonder Woman is in the crowd, (laughs) right? And there was an attendee there, a, a woman who dressed up as Wonder Woman,
4: the Canadian version, it was just red and white. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and uh, apparently she had her lasso of truth taken away from her by the same guards who took away our, our umbrellas, right? How ironic. And uh, well, that was what Dave Rubin was getting on. He says, isn't that ironic that you would have your lasso of truth taken away when we're going to see the greatest speaker on truth, Jordan Peterson, right? Well, at least his definition of truth. <laughs> well, yeah, well, let's not go down we'll get, that road. We'll get into that shortly. <laughs> So he asked her, why did she dress up for this this way? And she said all she wanted to do was take a picture with him after the event and wanted to pose with him as Wonder Woman, which she has been doing at all the Comic Cons uh, with various other personalities. And she said, well, I don't think Jordan Peterson is the kind I'm going to see at the average Comic Con. <laughs> right. So she dressed up for that. And the audience loved it. It was it worked out well.
4: Good launching point.
3: Yeah. But when Peterson came on, we, you know, he was there on his 12 Rules for Life tour, and uh, he didn't get talking about that. I think he only even dealt with chapter one, maybe about two-thirds of the way through his presentation.
4: Yeah, it was kind of almost like an afterthought of like, okay, I know you're here to hear me speak about the book, so I'll get to it eventually. But really what he wanted to do is talk about some of his experiences and what he's going through with the media and stuff like that. And I I found that it was refreshing, because I'm reading the book, and going and hearing it regurgitated wasn't really, you know, that sounds kind of boring.
3: <laughs> and he talked about his frustration with an interview he had in Dublin, Ireland, where he had been the week before, and he couldn't connect with the interviewer, because it just wasn't the same kind of conversation you could do in regulated radio that you can do, like, on a podcast like this, or on YouTube. And he talked about the power of this very media that we're in right now, and how podcasts themselves reach more people uh, than ever before. That, that's, that that outdoes YouTube and all the rest as well, even as well as they do. The people who are big on YouTube are bigger on their podcasts. But a number of the issues that he got into were about uh, some of the strangest things. Um, one of them was IQ tests. Do you remember that conversation?
4: No, I'm familiar with his uh, thoughts on IQ tests. Are you talking about the fact that the 10% of the population is below average IQ?
3: Yes, and they or talk well about below how, how important they were because they've been under attack a lot, especially with um, people calling IQ tests racist. You know, it's a white racist thing. We heard Dyson talking about that with Peterson. And he talked about how they were a necessity during wartime and with the military. And they found out that anyone with less than an 83 IQ was not someone who could function in the army or in the military. And they've discovered this over a long period of time.
4: Yeah, there's no task that they could possibly perform adequately.
3: Yeah, which is kind of strange to think anybody could be that bad in, in the military, but I guess they could be.
4: I'm, I'm wondering, is it possible
3: to cheat on an IQ test? Does anybody have any expertise on that? If you didn't want to get in the military,
1: could you cheat and get out of it?
4: I have no idea. I've never actually taken an IQ test, so I'm not
1: even sure what... I've actually administered them. Oh, oh, got... yeah. <laughs> uh, did some. So sorts... you would know. Well, when I was doing some research into um, correlation of white matter changes in the brain and dementia, we had to give uh, what's called the WACE-R, the Weschler Adult Intelligence Scale revised, to a number of patients at a hospital, and then correlate those scores to um, MRI images of their brain and white matter changes. Interesting. So... Basically, the, I, I know a bit about the IQ tests and how they've evolved over time and, and a lot of the problems in, involved in IQ tests. But generally speaking, no, you can't really fudge an IQ test unless you know the questions and the kind of answers that are going to be prepared. A lot of IQ tests are impossible to finish, for example. They give you too many questions to finish, which is a key component of some IQ tests. Also you have to be part of a demographic in particular IQ tests that I'm aware of. For example, it used to be used as a tool to predict a student's progress through the public education system in the United States, which is how they originally evolved. So it was a lot of the questions would be geared to a particular culture and a particular right. age. So for an adult to go back and take that same IQ test would be misusing... The test it's a very very complex issue and a very complex discussion that can arise from it because people are using it incorrectly in most of the instances that I'm aware of there's a lot of controversy out there now for example with uh, Stephane Molyneux and his use of uh, his talking about IQ tests and race people are accusing him of being a racist because he's pointing out um, apparently a fact that different races have a score better or worse on iq tests the, the complexity in, involved in the issue is like you, you can't really talk about it unless you know all of the parameters you're talking about the particular population that you're talking about what what is your intended goal from getting out the information from the iq test and it's 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 a dangerous path to tread when you start associating it with race yeah i can imagine
3: One of our regular listeners and fans to this show was also in attendance at the event, Trevor. And he sent us the copy of the recording that we're able to use today for today's show, so thank you very much for that, Trevor. Quote, I attended this lecture, you may have too. I think I disagreed with everything Dr. Peterson said regarding politics
0: and religion,
3: right? (laughs) And I acknowledge that we were there, and I says I have to agree with him that when it comes to certain aspects of his take on politics and religion there's a bit of confusion and mixing of contexts, so I think Peterson's take on left and right is not always about political ideology but about human motivations and the tensions caused by the competition within the various hierarchies to which he referred
5: Recruit Nelson reporting, Major At
4: ease, recruit I've been studying your aptitude tests and the results are amazing. You're quite a remarkable young woman. Thank you As you know, these tests determine your main interests and ability They help us to place you in the jobs you seem best suited to What did you find out about me? The average girl usually shows ability in several different fields But we've given you five separate tests and the answer is always the same It seems there's only one thing you're qualified to do What is that? Nothing How can that be? I don't know You have a very high IQ rating To say that you're capable of nothing just doesn't seem right. No. Before you enlisted, you must have been doing something.
2: Oh, yes, I was. What? Nothing. And for action is built into you and it's been built into you ever since single cells started to move actively in the world that's a very very long time so approach and avoidance so that's movement towards and movement away from things are the, the, the most that's the most fundamental apart from the ability to reproduce it's like the most fundamental element of, of active life it's a very old issue that you have to act in the world all right in order to act in the world which you have to do in order to survive, then you have to, you have to value things. So, what things? Well, a small number of things. Because part of what you're doing when you're acting in the world, or even looking at the world, which is actually a form of action, by the way, because when you look at the world, it isn't like you're a passive. It isn't like your eyes are just taking in what's there. Your eyes are moving around like mad, constantly. You have little tiny movements, hopelessness to cats, and if they stop, then you go blind right away, your, your eye is moving constantly, and then and then there's larger movements because your eyes dart around all the time, and so I, I, I'm telling you that because it shows that perception is dependent on action, and then not only that, you have to focus your attention on something rather than everything, so like when I'm talking to the audience, I don't just sort of glance blindly at everything, i Focusing very intently on a single person, not even on the person, but on their face, and not only on, not even on their face, but on their eyes. Like our 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 focus is unbelievably intense and, and 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 narrow. And so you have to act even to perceive, and to perceive and act, you have to select. And the way you select is by ignoring almost everything and privileging something. And so, what that and, and to ignore everything and to privilege something is to value, right? Because what you're doing by just by looking at something is acting on the proposition that one thing is more important than everything else. So there's no perception or action without a hierarchy.
3: Period. So one of the basic theories upon which um, Jordan Peterson is operating is this whole concept of hierarchies, which I found to be one of the most compelling parts of his presentation because I could relate to it and I understood what, what he was talking about in terms of the importance of the structure and the fact that you need structure in any community of beings, whether they're human beings, animals, anything. He said that hierarchies are the means by which ants, and yes even lobsters, solve problems. And Danielle, you mentioned something interesting that he didn't say at the event that you did read in his book about the lobster issue. (laughs) Yeah,
4: he was talking about how lobsters compete for their um, place in the hierarchy. So if you have a dominant lobster and it gets defeated by a lesser lobster, its brain actually apparently essentially dissolves and reconstitutes in order to adapt to its new place within the hierarchy, which I thought was very fascinating. Wow. That's how important hierarchies are to lobsters, which is why he's known as the lobster guy.
3: (laughs) Well, it's funny because he cracked a joke about that too because people have been giving him uh, lobster hats, lobster t-shirts, lobster this and that, you know, all sorts of uh, paraphernalia. And he
1: goes, I guess I deserve that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, part of the uh, hierarchy thing and, and comparing human behavior to that of lesser animals or lower animals crustaceans even, (laughs) is that human beings are fundamentally different when it comes to behavior than other animals in many respects. And I think Gad Sad said it best when we uh, were at that lecture by him, Bob, uh, at the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, when he quoted, I think, E.O. Wilson. Somebody approached Wilson and talked to him about the importance of social structure. And he said, look, it works well in ants, right? And he goes, nice theory, wrong species. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have to take what Jordan Peterson is saying, I think, with a, with a perspective of that, of all the animals, humans are the only ones with free will. And if we are going to analyze a human hierarchy, it may be instructive to look at other species, but it's not definitive, and it's not predictive.
4: I think his argument more so about using lobsters and lower animals like monkeys and stuff like that is that hierarchies occur naturally. It's not something like the patriarchy didn't invent them. that they, they occur naturally in nature. They are a fundamental necessity in order to structure society.
1: That argument has also been used to justify religion. People look at all different cultures throughout time and say that all of them have at some particular time Worshipped a god.
4: Lobsters don't.
1: Well, we don't know, do (laughs) we? Do you speak lobster?
4: (laughs) Do they speak lobster?
1: (laughs) We're being silly.
4: It's funny you
3: mentioned what you just mentioned about the, the, the human will factor. I actually made a note about that because, you know, he talks about hierarchies, natural and man made and looks at all causes as being related to some form of naturalism that excludes human reason and free choice from the equation, as though we were all predetermined to create these hierarchies. I think that's the point
1: you're getting at, that, is That's exactly it. There, it's the old determinism versus free will argument that if there's a hard wiring going on, as there apparently is in lobsters, that doesn't necessarily imply that the same thing is happening in humans. I mean, there may be a degree of that. I mean, we are biological organisms. We do share a lot in common with a lot of our uh, other species on the planet. But there is an ast- attribute to humans that does not exist in other animals that cannot be ignored. And that is our freedom to choose and to be more than the sum of our parts and to, in in a lot of respects, step out of our biological tendencies and say no even though i want to acknowledge you as being the alpha male i think i'm going to uh rather than submit i think i'm going to sue shoot you <laughs> or i'm going to go over here and ignore you or i'm going to try to to displace you or you know in other words i have a choice i'm not a lobster i'm not a dog in a pack i'm not an ant on an anthill I'm a human being, and I hope that Peterson is trying to convey out there with his talk about hierarchies that even though they are apparent in nature and even in human society, you cannot neglect to talk about the the free will component of human nature.
4: I also got that he was saying that they're not by... Um, default evil, because I think that was what he was saying, is like everybody keeps blaming the patriarchy for this, you know, power, the, the power struggle, right? When he's saying, no, this stuff happens naturally, so you can't blame it on capitalism, you can't blame it on the patriarchy, you can't blame it on something.
1: There is a natural hierarchy in man. First of all, it starts off with the family. When you're a newborn, sure. there's a yep. hierarchy. Exactly. You're at the bottom of it, even though that you get all the attention. <laughs> There is a, a man about the house who wears the pants, as the old adage would say, and though it may be a female as well. In many houses, it's the woman who wears the pants. But that's an analogy to a hierarchy. Wearing the pants is the alpha male or the alpha person or the dominant p- person. And it's uh, that's what it is in every family. The thing is that when we grow up and when we leave the family, what kind of hier- hierarchy are we stepping into we're stepping into a political hierarchy aren't we for example with in canada justin trudeau as the top lobster (laughs) and i mean if this is our idea of a hierarchy where this as jordan peterson himself described this person who has yet to grow up is the leader of our nation then i think there's something fundamentally wrong with the hierarchy we've established here in this country at least
3: Jordan Peterson has really been making the rounds now. He's extraordinarily well-known. He's famous internationally. Deservedly so. Yes, and he, and we certainly agree with the impetus of everything he's doing in the sense of getting his message out. We support his cause in terms of the whole gender issue that he got caught up with and, and his dispute with the universities. But now he's been on the circuit long enough that people have heard a lot of what he has to say, and now there's some pushback starting. Or at least some positive criticism. Yeah, but there's been a a lot of uh, comments made about his subjective uses of various religious phrases, terms... Changing definitions that he uses along the way when he's describing concepts like God and, and religion truth and and even truth to a point. One of them was written by Matt Johnson. I think you brought this to my attention, mm-hmm. didn't you, Robert? Was it in the Willette one? Yes. Talking about Jordan Peterson's religious views, which was published on July twenty third and found them very opaque. <laughs> I guess he was motivated by Sam Harris's question with Jordan Peterson that he can never quite answer, quote, what do you mean by God? And he describes God as, quote, how we imaginatively and collectively represent the existence and action of consciousness across time. Oh,
1: brother. I
3: can see where the thinking's coming from, though, because he is realizing that existence and consciousness are axiomatic, right, without coming out and saying it. And then applying the God concept to those axioms. But why does he have to be so cryptic and poetic? Because I don't think he has zeroed in on the grounded philosophy behind it, and that gets behind the whole debate between him and Harris. You know, when he talks about truth and God being, quote, the highest value in the hierarchy of values, so he, he, he acknowledges this hierarchy of values, and he says God is the future to which we make sacrifices, and that was a very interesting part of his debate as well.
1: You know, I'm reminded of an art show where somebody is standing in front of a Jackson Pollock and they thinking, you know, well, what do you think? Oh, I think it's profound. can she just see the use of color and the way that the paint splashes over here, juxtaposed from the hierarchical structure of the solid lines at the lower left of the, you know, it becomes okay. actually quite comedic to imbue something that really is, uh, oh, I don't want to say this word with Jordan Peterson, but nonsense, that really is not instructive, that really is not You think help. he's
4: obfuscating?
1: That's, that's the word, yes. Um, he's not advancing Uh-oh. the argument, and people are thinking that something is profound because they don't understand it. That, that statement to me... We just can't leave it there. I think he's, it's incumbent upon him to explain that in a lot fuller detail rather than just tweet it out there. I think that as, as, he's, as he's done with this little tweet that God is our struggle for humanity in the face of adversity as, throughout time. And I'm going, yeah, okay, well, sure, this is Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to leave that exactly where it belongs, which is further down the page you know rather than a scholarly discussion of what god is now i mean this man knows a lot more about the mytha the mythology of god than i certainly ever will but i think he's not doing us any favors by being so cryptic and flippant and and in in his responses to such a, a profound question
3: well again he's not coming from a philosophical ground he's coming from his own his own area of expertise, and he's, he's arrived very close to what mm-hmm. I think is getting to the right answer, and he seems to be open to discussing it and always being on the search for that.
1: Oh, no, I would never object to uh, or, or criticize him for that. He's definitely an open-minded, honest man, searching for what we call the truth. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure what he means by the truth. <laughs> Actually, that's bizarre with him him and Sam Harris. He's saying that something is true if it only advances your survivability. Uh, to put it in a nutshell yeah. and I'm saying no sorry I'm going to go to Webster's and see what the word truth means and it doesn't mean that I can say the same thing about God he might say that God is um, uh, the highest value well I'm sorry I look up God in here and God means this white bearded man invented by the Canaanites 25 years 2,500 years ago who was a demigod to the God L you know? and so it becomes obfuscation and confusion when he describes things in those terms.
4: You reminded me of that Star Wars, um, uh, part of Star Wars where Obi-Wan is uh, telling uh, Luke Skywalker that telling him about his father, what he told him was true from a certain point of view.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And now I want to talk to you a little bit about, mostly I'm going to talk about the first rule in 12 rules for life, because there's a problem that I want to address tonight. And that problem is, it's the problem It's the problem of the left. But I'm not approaching it precisely as a critic of the left any more than I would be a critic of the right. I want to approach the problem of the left as if it's a technical problem. Because I do think it's a technical problem. And I want to lay out why it's a technical problem. So a little bit of background for this. And I'm going to do that in the the context provided by the first rule, which is stand up straight with your shoulders back, which is meditation, at least in part, on hierarchies and their permanence, and the strategy that you need to implement if you're going to be successful in the permanent hierarchy. Now, in in 12 Rules for Life, in the first (laughs) chapter, I talk about hierarchies, and and there's a reason for that, and the reason is, at least in part, to address, what would you call it, a, um, a profound, but also very attractive, criticism of the West, its capitalist structure, its private property structure, its individualism, leveled by the radical leftists, most particularly the Marxists. Now the Marxist types, with a little help from the postmodern types, tend to conceptualize the West as a patriarchy and as an oppressive patriarchy, and to lay the sort and that's a hierarchical structure of the patriarchy with, in principle, a few people dominating the top of it, and to also lay the fact of that hierarchy and its unequal distributions at the feet of Western civilization and capitalism. And so it's partly what I'm trying to address in the first rule. It's like, okay, let's take a look at that. And what I was attempting to put forward was a proposition, which is the problem is way deeper than that. Like, we could give the devil his due and say that those who criticize the structure of hierarchies for their tendency to tilt towards domination by power and their proclivity to dispossess people, to make people stack up at the bottom, that's all accurate. But it's even more accurate than the Marxist types presume because they make the presumption that that's a consequence of the political system and the economic system and the social system and so forth that exists, particularly in the West, but that's not the case because hierarchical structures that dispossess, that are rigid and dispossess, have been around for 350 million years. And so I trace them back to crustaceans, lobsters, Somewhat famously, now, now I'm being pursued by lobsters everywhere I go. People give me lobster oven nets and lo- our lobsters salt and sh- pepper shakers, and, Jesus, I've got more lobsters than you can shake a stick at, which isn't something I ever really planned, you know, but serves me right. But the point that I was trying to make was, well, first of all, that, that, that hierarchies are the most common method for solving the problem of cooperation and competition in relationship to scarce resources by living creatures, period. Not capitalists, not Westerners, not human beings, not even mammals, right? Not even reptiles. Glorified insects have hierarchies. Hierarchies have been so around for so long that the primary phenomenon which your nervous system has adapted is in fact the hierarchy and that's the 350 million year problem so if we're going to talk about hierarchies and their problems we're not going to lay the damn problems at the feet of the west or capitalism or even human beings to kind of move you through life, right? You've got to have a sense that you're moving towards something better. And the better that better is, the more you might be motivated to pursue it. And so that would have a tendency to transform itself archetypally into something like the Kingdom of God, or Heaven on Earth, or or the eternal brotherhood of man. Some ultimate ideal. And you can't just scrap the ultimate ideal. Not so easily. But then you have the problem with the ultimate ideal. It demands sacrifice. And then you have the problem. I'm writing a preface to the Gulag Archipelago, the abridged version, the 50th anniversary version. And I have to deliver that in the next couple of days, and that's partly why I've been working through the problems that I'm sharing with you tonight. It's like, certainly the Russian revolutionaries were willing to sacrifice everyone, everyone, to their heavenly vision. And that started right away, as soon as the revolution occurred. It didn't take five years, two years, or five years, or ten years. It wasn't dependent on the cult of personality. The rounding up and the sacrifices, they were happening right now, and on a huge scale. And so it's a tremendous danger. You have to make sacrifices to obtain the the vision. Who should you sacrifice? Well, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about the narrative substructure upon which our culture is predicated is that the answer to that question is provided in those stories. It's provided at least in part by the image of the crucifixion, right? Because that's a self-sacrifice. You have to sacrifice something to attain what's necessary. If it isn't going to be you who sacrifices yourself, then it's going to be you who sacrifices someone else. That's what it looks like. The sacrifice might be necessary. Well, we know sacrifice is necessary, right? There's the archaic idea of sacrifice. You offer something up to God in the hopes that his benevolence will shine on you. And you can think about that as a kind of superstition. In a sense it is, to sacrifice an animal, to burn it so that its smoke arises to heaven, so God can detect the quality of your sacrifice and determine whether you're living in accordance with with the heavenly, what what, what would you call it, With, with the heavenly ethic. But it's acted out. It's a very sophisticated idea that's acted out first. We all know we have to make sacrifices. When I ask my students, what did your parents sacrifice so you could go to university? Most of them, children of first-generation immigrants as they are, can list off a very long list of sacrifices that their parents made. And we know that a hallmark of maturity is to make sacrifice for something that is better in the future. What should you sacrifice? How about not other people? You have to sacrifice something though. Well, if you're not going to sacrifice other people, Well, then you offer yourself up as a voluntary sacrifice, right? And that's part of that underlying story. And that's part of the antidote to the pathology of compassion, let's say. That that it's, it's part of the ethos of the radical collectivist left. The antidote to that collective version of sacrifice is, as far as I'm concerned, the fundamental notion of individual sacrifice. And what that means is the adoption of individual responsibility. And, and what's so remarkable about that, I think, is that the story upon which our culture, our functional culture, is predicated, is the, is the story that places the fundamental burden for putting the structure of reality right on you as a consequence of the necessity for you to make the proper sacrifices voluntarily. And I think that that story is true.
3: You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Check out patreon.com justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things Just Right about freedom and capitalism. And one of the things that Jordan Peterson talks a lot about is the whole concept of sacrifice and the role of sacrifice. And about whether sacrifice is, is the sacrifice of others to one's own goals or sacrificing the self for one's own goals. In fact, he used Christ on the cross as being an example of Christ having turned that sacrifice into the sacrifice of self to reach some kind of a higher goal. And he says that the Judeo-Christian platform on which our consciousness is predicated cannot destroy the story behind it without a terrible void and vacuum that remains to be filled. So if we replace Christianity, what do we fill it with? That's a question.
1: That begs the question, why does it need to be filled?
3: Well, because we need a hierarchy
1: of values. Who says? Well... Doesn't everybody say? Don't we (laughs) we
3: even say that?
1: (laughs) Well, we may actually, but I think it's not accurate to say that if Christianity is not there, it must be filled up with something else. That implies that it must be filled up with another religion, I think, Uh, and that may not be what. Or nihilism
4: is what he's threatening. That's going to fill it if if you don't have religion, you go to nihilism.
1: I see. Yeah. Well,
3: and that's the history he sees. He refers to Russia continually. And other totalitarian countries oh, okay. who have
1: abandoned religion for atheism See, I'm which thinking, gets back to the atheism. I'm issue. thinking individually here. I'm not thinking a country doesn't adopt a religion. A society doesn't adopt a religion. An individual does. And We've talked about this before on the show there's no such thing as a society it's just individuals when you talk about a particular person, I may go down the street and I find an atheist, a Christian, a jew a uh, a Muslim, you know
3: yes, but the story of religion is what unites those individuals right because they share that common story they may not even them.
1: they may not even share the story like I just said, you can go down the street and you can talk to all these different people with who are operating on different stories and they're actually operating as individuals. nobody operates as a group. And I think it's probably wrong to have that kind of mindset that if society, or whatever that is, dismisses Christianity, what are you going to fill it up with? No, ask an individual. And I think that he's talked about this before where he says you have to have some sort of religion to be moral, as a lot of people incorrectly say. And again, we go back to Gad Sad saying, you know, no, you don't need religion to be moral.
4: Or at least acknowledging that our society and our morality comes from religion, even if they they will let you have your token atheists.
1: Well, It is absolutely true that for most people, I think, in in society today who are religious, their sense of morality comes from their adoption of particular stories from religion. Uh, Mine certainly doesn't. Because I have a different sense of morality. For them, morality is sacrifice. Others come before you. It is better to to give than to receive. For me, that's a different sense of morality than what I have, and it doesn't come from religion.
3: Well, in this regard, he referred to Russian revolutionaries who are quote, willing to sacrifice everyone and anyone to their utopian goal. And so he said to them, the only question was, who should you sacrifice? And that was when he referred to the answer being, provided by the crucifixion. This is where he gets into the symbolism, the religious symbolism, Christ self-sacrificing rather than sacrificing others. And he said, what should be sacrificed? He says, well, how about starting with not other people? Okay, that was at least a starting point for, for Jordan Peterson, and I get that.
1: Of course, yeah,
3: that's an excellent response. And, and then he makes the classic error that Ayn Rand pointed out so many times, and using the same example, quote, what did your parents sacrifice so that you could go to university, And <laughs> quote? We've, how many times have we heard that one? Oh, too many, as a matter of fact. And yeah.
1: it, it becomes down to the definition of the word sacrifice.
3: Very much so. He's looking at it as giving up a greater, a current value for a greater value in the future. Which is not, in our definition, a sacrifice. No, a Isn't sacrifice. that an investment?
1: Yes. A <laughs> yeah, so sacrifice
3: is supposed to mean you give something up, yes. right? You lose something. You, have, you end up with less than you began with. Now, when a parent's quote-unquote sacrifices buying that second car for their child's university, all that is saying is that they value their child's university education more than they value the car. Now, now there's that, the,
1: that hierarchy of values we were talking the, about. You
3: yes. can't get away from it. It's always there. Mm-hmm. You can't get away from the values. And so, is that a sacrifice? No. It's, it's a gaining of values. And that's what he's talking about. And he's confusing that with the kind of sacrifices that the Russians were making, you know what I mean, or that Hitler or any of the totalitarians were making when they just killed people to their cause. That's why I think he's, there is all this religious analogy and I think more people are religiously oriented in the in the grander scheme of things in the public than they are totally rationally oriented
1: philosophically and maybe he's reaching more people that way. I think he's adding value to the discussion. I think that his perspective on how we treat myths and stories and religion in society is certainly a refreshing one. Um, It's often unique and it's certainly adding to the conversation. I, I wouldn't dismiss that. I think there's a danger, however, in losing sight of a more objective reality. Like, around this table, the three of us ascribe or find that we are in line with the uh, philosophy of Ayn Rand, objectivism. And it has a, a very important name, objectivism, right? It means right. That there's an objective truth out there. And even though we are surrounded by thousands of years of a morality, an ethos, uh, an ethics, a, a mythos, a stories that we disagree with. Some of them we can look at and say, "This is this is valuable." I'll throw this one out. And so, when he's talking about these stories and how they relate today, that's that's important. But don't lose sight of the ball that you're an individual with your own set of values. Society can go get stuffed. When it comes to a lot of things, and you are the center of your universe, and proceed from that point. F- proceed from that point w- with your sense of morality. proceed from that point in how you deal with other people, meaning politics, proceed from that point with your own set of uh, hierarchy of values, what you consider to be art, what you consider to be the good um, that 's lost I think mm-hmm. in a lot of the storytelling, because he's always talking about, No, I shouldn't say this, always, he's talking about societies and how societies behave. I reject that kind of language. I think individuals behave. Well, I think he kind of crosses both of them. It's
3: it's interesting, Dave Rubin asked him in the Q&A part, what do you mean when you say atheists aren't really atheists? And Peterson referred to his arguments and debates with Sam Harris, who apparently is an atheist, talks to him about, The whole concept of living life means you want to minimize suffering, which Jordan Peterson sees as the landscape of heaven and hell, between suffering and the opposite of what suffering is. Hell is suffering, he says. Heaven is the opposite. And he says, but either way you look at it, these ideas embody the ethic of moving away from hell, which he says, well, basically Christianity already beat you to that concept. And so he's trying to tell the atheist, that you didn't invent this, that what what you're calling your atheism was already embedded in you because of the Judeo-Christian ethic that has been part of your life since you grew up. That there there may be something to that. And sure. and he said um, um, that Harris gives no reason for how he arrived at his conclusion, whereas Ayn Rand did, right? For um, Peterson, this all boils down to the religious origins of truth, and our ethics, and our values. And I would put it, I would turn it around on them. I'd say that we had those values before
1: religion came along. I would agree. As a matter of fact, yeah. I, we said this on the show before, that Christianity did not invent benevolence. It did not invent good be- behavior towards each other. You just have to go to societies that have been extant for thousands of years, like over in China and Japan, to see that People are generally good to each other without ever knowing who Jesus Christ was.
4: It's a cart-horse kind of scenario, which came first. <laughs> that's chicken-egg, never mind.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but the final
3: question that I think will lead us into our closing conversation, understand, Danielle, you're going to be yeah, uh, l- leaving us after this because you have to be at another appointment. But um, he said, if you could use Wonder Woman's lasso of truth, who would you use it on? (laughs) And his answer was Vladimir Putin. He wanted to know whether Putin believed there is a power that he's subordinate to that would be higher than himself. And he said that would be a relief. And he noted that Putin is supportive of the orthodox Christianity that has begun a revival in Russia. And I think that speaks a lot to... um, what Putin is about, which is something we'll talk about when we return, right, Robert? Yes, Bob. Okay. All right.
5: Mr. President, one of the issues that is standing in the way of more progress, as you know, are the allegations of Russian interference in the U.S. election. You have repeatedly said, and you said again today, that this was not the action of the Russian state, that if it was anything, it was patriotic Russian individuals. I have here the indictment that was presented on friday from the special counsel robert muller that says that twelve members of russian military intelligence the g r u and they talk specifically about units twenty six one sixty five and seventy four four fifty five they say you smile let me finish (laughs) they say that these units were specifically involved in hacking into Democratic Party computers stealing information and spreading it to the world to try to disrupt the American election. May I give this to you to look at, sir? Here? Well, let me Uh,
0: start answering your question uh, with something a little bit different. Let's have a look at it this way. People are talking about the purported interference of Russia with the election process in the United States. I've mentioned this in 2016 and I want to say it now again. And I really wish for your American listeners to listen to what I say. First of all, Russia, as a state, has never interfered with the internal affairs of the United States, let alone its elections.
5: But, but sir, this this is the indictment. It shows I have 12 names here. It talks about specific units of the GRU, Russian military intelligence. Is the GRU not part of the Russian
0: state? I'll get to it. Just have a a little bit of patience and you'll get a full answer to your question. Interference with the domestic affairs of the United States. Do you really believe that someone acting from the Russian territory could have influenced the United States and influenced the choice of millions of Americans? I'm not asking this is utterly whether they
5: I'm asking whether they tried. I'm about to answer.
0: Well, this was the first point that I'm trying to make. If you'll have some patience, you'll hear the entire response. 16 году, хочу повторить сейчас. I said this in 2016, and I say it now. The idea was about hacking uh, an email account of a democratic candidate. Was it some
5: uh, rigging of facts?
0: Was it some forgery of facts? That's the important thing that I'm trying to point that I'm trying to make. Was this any false information planted? No, it wasn't. These hackers that have been discussed, and I'll get back to it. Just uh, bear with me to be for a moment as we are getting told, they hacked a certain email account, and there was an information about manipulations conducted within the Democratic Party to uh, incline the process in favor of one candidate. And as far as I know, the entire party leadership re- resigned. They admitted the fact of their manipulations. So, that's one thing, that manipulations where the public opinion should stop, and an apology should be made to the public at large. Instead of looking for the responsible for the party at fault. And now to the mentioned things. As I said in the press conference... But, Mr. President, may I, ju- may I, may I just say, you're, s- you're indicating that they stole
5: real money, like not counterfeit money. So are you saying it's okay because of the facts that they took from the DNC, from John Podesta, it was their real email, so it's okay to hack and... Per- spread this information out and interfere with the
0: election? Well, listen to me, please. The information that I am aware of, there's nothing false about it. Every single grain of it is true, and the democratic leadership admitted it, the first point. Now, the second point. If you don't like my answer, you can give it to me straight away and I just keep silence. And If you want Americans to listen to my opinion, could you please wait for a little bit? And now for the specific accusations. First of all, special counsel Miller has accused a certain private company in Russia that is not even a very big enterprise. Its core area of competence is a restaurant business. And now, this company hired American lawyers and defending its integrity and reputation in an American court. So far, American court has not discovered any trace of interference whatsoever. Do you know it or not? But let the millions of Americans know about it. And now to the individuals from the Indictment Act. We, with the United States, we have a treaty for assistance in criminal cases. An existing treaty that exists from 1999 it's still in force, and it works efficiently. Today, I referred an example of its efficient work.
5: No, I, I, and, and I'm not trying to. Why would Mr. Or, Miller? I'm not trying to interrupt or be just dis- well, Let me finish.
0: Just let me finish. We're, try, we're trying to interrupt, but I will finish.
5: Why wouldn't Special
0: Counselor Mueller send us an official request within the framework of this agreement? Our investigators will be acting in accordance with this treaty. They will question each individual that American part, uh, partners are uh, suspecting of something. Why not a single request was filed? Nobody sent us a single formal uh, letter, Let me
5: just say, I don't, I don't want to interrupt and I want to ask one question and move on to other subjects. Why do you think Robert Mueller issued this indictment three days before you and President Trump met here at the summit?
0: It's absolutely not I'm not interested in this issue in this single bit. It's the internal political games of the United States. Don't make the relationship between Russia and the United States. don't hold it hostage of this internal political struggle. So when you go to the
1: actual horse's mouth, so to speak, and listen to what they have to say, you're going to glean a lot more information about the man than if you just simply take sound bites. And I think we can learn that from a recent interview by Chris Wallace of Fox News with Vladimir Putin just after the Helsinki summit with Donald Trump. Yeah, I found it fascinating. Yeah, exactly. It was very fascinating. In that half an hour, I think I learned more about Vladimir Putin than I did in all of the sound bites that I would have heard from the mainstream media about him in the years preceding. In that interview, I took two things away and... I think you may have noticed this as well, Bob, that the man is particularly uh, clever, very smart, very well-spoken, and was able to handle what I thought was uh, an obtuse interviewer, Chris Wallace. As a matter of fact, I really enjoy anybody who would say to a person who's interrupting them, if you're a little patient, I will give you a full answer. Yes. Yes. That struck me as, as um, important because you can gauge a lot about a person's character and sense of will and goodwill when they are very calmly dealing with a difficult situation by saying, have a little patience, we'll get to that. I want to deal with this one by one point at a time. Speaking about the points, this is the other thing I took away that from that interview. And this is not complimentary to Putin. This is a tactic of the left that is deflecting from a proper answer. And that is that when asked why I do something, the answer that Putin gives as to why he does something is that, well, they do it. What I got out of
3: that whole interview was that he and Trump apparently made progress, that he would like to see a better relationship with the United States generally. He was very straight up. When they asked him about what would happen if NATO moved to add Ukraine or Georgia to the alliance, and he said how would how would you react and he said very negatively, yes. and he said it right away. He didn't even finish the question before that came out. right now, they were had planned another meeting between Putin and Trump, which has now been put off because of this issue. I think what he was talking to Trump about, and I got this from listening between the lines is that he was asking Trump if Trump would be okay with a referendum being held in Crimea. And he said, look, at, he doesn't look at it as we're annexing Crimea. He says, it's as if they had a referendum. They did have a referendum. And they did have a referendum. He says, so if that's not democracy, he yeah. says, what is? <laughs> I know. And that, that was a powerful response. That right? had
1: to do with perspective as well, didn't it? From our perspective over here, we see on the map yeah. this these borders, these lines saying Ukraine. And then all of a sudden, well, there were, there was violence involved in this. By the way, I think there was violence involved with uh, Russia as well, the taking down of that passenger plane from uh, Russian soil. Mm-hmm. But we see from the West our point of view about that area. And I remember we talked about it on Just Right when it was happening, My take was, look, the lines on the map over in that area of the world have changed so much, so frequently. Even within our our lifetime, Bob, you can throw out your atlases, your your political atlases, because they don't make any sense anymore. They've changed so much. So when something happens over there, you can't look at it as uh, like the, um, the state of Florida leaving the United States. You have to look at the history of the Ukraine, how that has never really been a solid border between the Ukraine and Crimea or any other aspect of or or, or province of that area. And for us, it looks cut and dried that, oh, my God, Russia just just annexed the Crimea. Well, let's look at it from their perspective. It's mostly Russian. (laughs) Mind you, that... It wasn't always russian i mean it's russian because of the soviet union and it was taken over in in the same sense of northern ireland i guess and unfortunately yeah they had a referendum it went in favor of russia the ukraine lost and i think that that's where it should stop and when you start to think okay let's take it from their their perspective and their history and their culture is it worth dying over going into the ukraine annexing, um, trying to get the Crimea back, uh, uh, taking, making NATO, uh, uh, bringing NATO into the Ukraine and, and exacerbating a very delicate situation, or should just we just look at this as an internal affair and stand back? And listening to Putin, you're more inclined to say, okay, let's just stand back here because obviously we're not getting the big picture. Yeah, and
3: unfortunately the United States is not accepting that situation right now which is what's putting off that next meeting for a while and i think they have to cool it a bit despite whatever progress they might might have made on other issues between them. I found it also very interesting that all this talk about the Russians being involved in, in 2016 election and interfering with the election
1: <laughs> I per- loved his answer with that one. He says, and he actually had to laugh at yeah. this, basically saying, so you think that if putting some ads on Facebook is going to change the mind of millions of well, Americans Well, whatever they did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, and I, I was, he laughed at the ludicrous suggestion.
3: He also said now, he says, now, I don't mean to be insulting to Mr. Trump, he says, <laughs> but before he ran, we didn't give a hoot about him.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah
3: like, he wasn't even on our radar. U.S. has lots of rich people, right? And he was just one of them, and he wasn't even somebody we would were thinking about. Clearly, it's hard to deny, at least from what I'm seeing, maybe you, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I would suggest that the Russians are very happy Russia in general is very happy with the fact that Trump got elected.
1: Look what Hillary Clinton did for Russia when she was the Secretary of State. They gave them a huge uranium supply, most of it from Canada, you know, uh, originating from Canada, for a speaking fee for her husband. So, I don't know, it may be, maybe uh, Putin would gotten along a, long, a a lot better with Hillary Clinton, considering her corrupt nature and the nature and the history of uh, Vladimir Putin as an ex KGB agent in, right. a, in a very dysfunctional country. Trump comes along. I think what he likes about Trump is that he's a sh- straight shooter.
3: Yes. And I think that they both have no problems about the idea that each one is acting first and foremost in the interests of their own country.
1: That's, that's, a, that's a basis from which two people can start negotiations. Yes.
3: And I think uh, at least both Trump and Putin have taken one small step in the right direction. And we'll take more next week. So be sure to join us again then when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see you then. Spasibo. Fade into color, color into black and white bad
1: everything will be on right. Colonel Hogan will you please keep your pigeon at home Did he give you much trouble trouble he's a one man russian front yeah, I'll keep an eye on this time and if he gets away again I'm going to turn him over to the germans in self defense all, all right
5: ta right. okay? okay. ta
0: You've been a naughty boy, Igor.
2: Colonel, as long as you keep me against my will, I am prisoner. But you cannot watch forever. I am not going to England. I go to Russia. What's so special about Russia? Colonel, you have never
1: been
4: there?
2: Never. I do not know what you are missing. Oh, really? Tell me. I'd love to hear the story. It will be pleasure.
5: Russia is the most wonderful country.
3: Is it big? Ten times bigger than the United States.
5: Ooh. Most
1: beautiful rivers. The Volga is longest
3: river in the entire world. Cities. <laughs>
1: come, oh, come on. See yeah. Moscow. You? Yeah. You I got should hook up it. a telephone yeah. wire from Plink's office to mine. I'll have it rigged for you in a half
5: hour. Igor going to England? Nope. Russia. <laughs> <laughs> what?
4: shipping tonnage on Volga increased by 10% or 176,000
2: tons. more. At the same time, wheat crops, in spite of bad weather, were
5: better by...